How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. All right. Today, I'm your host, and uh, welcome back, Ian, as well. Ian, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody, and welcome back. All right. Welcome back, everybody. And today, we're going to be talking about the Egyptologist and archaeologist Howard Carter, who, was one of the most famous dis- who made one of the most famous discoveries of all time with the unearthing of one of the world's best-preserved and most ancient mummies, that of the boy king, King Tutankhamun. But before we get into that... Discovery, oh, yeah. possible curse... Oh, and we'll get into the, the supposed curse of King Tut as well. And uh, it's some interesting coincidences that came with that. But uh, before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check out our Facebook and our Twitter pages for information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page, Facebook community page, for more information and to interact with the podcast. We're also in the development of a Patreon-only Discord server for more direct interaction with the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor and or our Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content and more for as little as $3 a month. You can also support us by joining the community page and sharing any historical information you come across. And then in the end, we're going to give some shout outs to those of you who have already liked our social media platforms, and we thank you for the growth that has already been experiencing. So don't forget to like follow, comment, and even write a review on any of our platforms as we really appreciate it. All right. Like I said, today we're going to be talking about the archaeologist Howard Carter and the famed discovery that he made with the unearthing of King Tut. And as usual, like we've been doing with these series recently, I'd like to start with a quote that Howard Carter said. And uh, this is a quote. For the moment and eternity, it must have seemed to the others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement. And more Lord Carnivone, Unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. All right, and uh, Ian, if you don't have anything to say, we'll get right into it. This sounds like foreshadowing of discovering something. Oh, yeah, and we'll figure out exactly what that discovery is now. All right, so getting right into it. Obviously, before we have to talk about the discoveries that Howard Carter made and uh, the awesome stuff that came along with the discovery of King Tut, one of the most intact mummies that has ever been found, and uh, all the stuff that Howard Carter did with that, we first have to start with talking about his early life and his beginning so we can understand where this person came from, who he was, and uh, how he got into Egyptology. So, uh, Ian, you can go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you for the lovely introduction. Uh, Howard Carter was born in Kensington, England, on May 9th, 1874. He was the youngest child of 11 kids, born under his father, artist, and illustrator, Samuel John Carter, and mother, Martha Joyce Sands. His father would ultimately be one of the one, would ultimately be the one who trained and developed Howard's artistic talents when it came to making sketches and diagrams of his discoveries later as an Egyptologist. Right, and uh, you take into account that back then these families were huge. Like I said, uh, eleven other kids in the family, so this is a big, pretty big family. And uh, and then uh, also noticed that uh, he gained a lot of his artistic skills from his father. And uh, he actually, if you were to look at some of Howard Carter's notes, and he uh, he made very detailed notes when he found King Tut. A lot of those drawings were very good compared to a lot of the archaeologists and the Egyptologists at that same time. So uh, he really inherited his art skills for that from his father. Well, I, I thought my family was big. I'm a family of seven. 
Yeah, yeah right. Actually, family of eleven. That's crazy. It's a big family for sure. Yeah. Um, Howard Carter spent much of his childhood with his relatives in the Norfolk Market town of Swaffham. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, the birthplace of both his parents. Uh, nearby was the mansion of the Armhurst family, which contained, uh, which containing a sizable collection of Egyptian antiques, sparked Carter's interest in the subject. Later in 1891, the Egypt Exploration Fund (EEF) sent Carter to assist the Amherst family friend Percy Newberry in excavating the recording, the recording Middle Kingdom tombs at Beni Hassan. I, I'm sorry if I butchered any pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, this one has some more, uh, some more hard words. <laughs> so, uh, getting right into it, uh, Howard Carter, uh, he was very influenced by this this nearby mansion and it's really what ended up sparking his interest in uh, in egyptology and it actually would go on to do an excavation of sorts for that same mansion under uh, percy newberry uh excavating and recording the middle kingdom tombs at ben beni hassan in uh in egypt so uh that mansion really sparked his interest in egyptology and it was ultimately how he got into the field And uh, moving on to uh, later in his life, at the young age of 17, Carter was innovative in improving the methods of copying tomb decorations. And in 1892, because of his skills, even worked under Flinders Petrie for one season at Ar Amarna. Yeah, Flinders Petrie. Uh, the capital founded by Akhenaten, or Akhenaten, Akhenaten. Or Akhenaten. Uh, through the years 1894 to 1899, he continued to work as an Egyptologist by recording wall reliefs at the Temple of Hatshepsut. Yeah, Hatshepsut. So uh, Akhenaten was actually the, the grandfather, I believe, of King Tut. And uh, if you don't know, Akhenaten was a very heretical pharaoh in himself and ultimately changed the religious and caste belief system of Egypt and ultimately really started to devote and a divide in Egypt. So uh, we're talking about ancient times and the actual discovery and the person behind King Tut. King Tut was really born at, a, at an interesting time because uh, the remnants of the stuff that his father had done in his lifetime and the divide that he created with uh, the religious systems was something that King Tut had to take on at a very young age. Because uh, like we said, he's known as a boy pharaoh. So uh, he, yeah. he was a very young pharaoh. He's probably the youngest pharaoh that uh, Egypt ever witnessed. In, I was uh, going to say, world. wasn't he like one of the youngest? I think he was like, what was he, like age nine or something? Yeah, he was incredibly young, especially for the age of a pharaoh at that time. And uh, it, he ultimately had to go on and take that on because of this divide that Akhenaten made. And so uh, you can imagine it was uh, not an easy rule for him. Yeah. Incredibly young, nonetheless. Oh, yeah. And uh, I do yeah, want to get into a... Oh, yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> I do want to get into Flinders Petrie, too, because Flinders Petrie was another famous Egyptologist and uh, ultimately uh, another person that would inspire Howard Carter. And uh, if you guys don't know, Flinders Petrie was, uh, like I said, another famous Egyptologist. And uh, he he himself made uh, tons of very important discoveries. And you guys uh, should definitely look more into Flinders Petrie. And uh, Hopshetsut was uh, another one that was pretty interesting uh, for her time as a as a queen and uh, later a pharaoh of Egypt. She was one of the only few 
queens that actually became pharaoh and actually ruled Egypt as as a woman. So Akhenaten, so I'm not Akhenaten. Uh, Howard Carter really had a a wide range of sites that he got to study and really dove pretty deep into uh, the history of Egypt with all, all these different sites and the different time spans and the different stuff that happened during these time spans. He really got a uh, really got his knowledge worth out of these excavations, these early excavations. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of different sources for uh, influence for him there with all these different rulers and uh, different historical figures. Um, but moving on to, to later in his career, in 1899, Carter was appointed to the position of Chief Inspector of the Egyptian Antiquities Services, or EAS, where he supervised a number of excavations at Thebes, now known as Thieves. Luxor. <clears throat> yeah, that's Thebes. In, in 1904, <laughs> Thebes. Uh, in 1904, he transferred to the Inspectorate of Lower Egypt and was praised for his improvements in the protection of existing excavation sites and the development of a grid block system for searching tombs. Uh, the Antiquities Service also provided funding for Carter to head his own excavation projects. Yeah, so a lot of these early excavations were stuff that uh, Carter ultimately ended up working for people. But then uh, later on, we see that the Antiquity Service actually hires himself to had his own excavation projects because of the skill and uh, the opportunities he got on the job site through these early excavations. Uh, and then getting some more into some Egypt history, Thebes and Luxar, or uh, they're the same thing, Luxar was Thebes, uh, was the, the capital of uh, Lower Egypt. And if you don't know, Lower Egypt is actually towards the top where the Delta is. And this is because of the way that the Nile flows because the Nile flows from the from the south to the north, and so they flipped southern Egypt on top and northern Egypt on bottom. That's an interesting contradiction there. Well, it was the way that the the Nile flowed, and uh, for them, not knowing the difference between north and south, based on the way that the river flowed, that was their north. Right, and, and isn't uh, yeah? Were you gonna say something? I was just going to say that um, how the river flowed, wasn't that how they built their society uh, on it, like with the flow of water? Well, oh, yeah, the, the Nile was the lifeblood of uh, all of Egyptian civilization. If you're going to go out deep into the Sahara Desert, you're not going to find as many uh, as many settlements and as many pyramids as you would towards the Nile because uh, the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. Yeah. And uh, the grid block system that uh, the Howard Carter used, and this kind of changing subjects from uh, ancient Egypt to uh, some of the stuff Howard Carter did. But anyways, the grid block system that uh, he used for searching for tombs is something that uh, archaeologists and Egyptologists still use to today. And it's a it's a very similar system you would use as if you were uh, if you were excavating any archaeological site. That's where you uh, you set up a grid pattern and you take it square by square. So that way you know where each artifact comes from and you can study each independent area within its own quadrant. So uh, this system perfected really helped in finding uh, a lot more artifacts and was a more effective way ultimately of excavating historical sites. Wow. That kind of grid system actually sounds kind of similar to uh, like the diving, uh, searching for wrecks system. Well, right. It's it's based off the same system. Uh, underwater archaeology still uses that same grid system, and uh, obviously it's a little bit harder underwater, but it, it works more or less the same way. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting connection there. And uh, even later in his life, in 1905, Howard Carter resigned from the Antiquity Service after a formal inquiry into what became known as the Saqqara Affair, which was a noisy confrontation between Egyptian sight guards and a group of French tourists in which Carter sided with the Egyptian personnel. Later, after this excursion, Carter would eventually go on to make the discovery of his lifetime. Yep, and uh, we all know what that discovery will be. But uh, it's interesting that in 1905, he resigned from the Antiquity Service because uh, the Antiquity Service was pretty much what ran all of uh, all of Egyptology in Egypt. And it was like the, the head of everything that went on Egyptology-wise. So it, it's interesting. And uh, this this confrontation that uh, he kind of got stuck in, I wonder if that had something to do with uh, the reason he resigned. Uh, maybe siding with the Egyptian sight guards was a, a bad publicity stunt, and so uh, maybe he, maybe it ultimately forced him to resign. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that immediately after he resigns from the antiquity service, he ends up discovering uh, King Tut's tomb, which is it's funny to me because the antiquity service is like the head of, like you said, like the head of all the Egyptology stuff. Right, so it really shows that uh, he goes on and uh, does a lot of this stuff himself. Besides, uh, Lord Carnivon, who we'll talk about earlier, which was his uh, where he got most of his funding. But uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, Howard Carter went went pretty much solo. Wow. So yeah, let's get right into his discovery. Yep, that discovery of his lifetime. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we will be right back after a short message from our sponsor. All right, so jumping right back into the discovery of King Tutankhamun. So uh, in 1907, after three hard years of work, Howard Carter was employed by Lord Carnarvon to supervise excavations of nobles' tombs near Thebes. Carter had been recommended for the job by one Gaston Maspero, who told Carnarvon he knew Carter would be important as he would apply modern archaeological methods and systems of recording. So uh, ultimately, this was how uh, Carter found his way in. Right. So Carnarvon was the one who was supporting uh, Carter's excavations. Exactly. And... Uh, uh, yeah, so in 1914, Lord Carnarvon received the concession to dig in the Valley of the Kings, and Carter was employed to lead the work. However, excavations and studies would soon be interrupted by the First World War, where Carter would spend these years working for the British government as a diplomatic courier and translator, but would go back to finish his excavations in 1917, obviously after the war had ended. So that's like a three-year... Uh, pause right there where he has to go and be a diplomat right and uh, i never realized too that uh, howard carter actually lived during the same time as uh, lawrence of arabia and uh, percy fawcett because remember all these guys were impacted by uh by world war one uh percy fawcett was in a, a artillery general uh, lawrence of arabia obviously was serving in the the arab and sinai campaigns and uh, howard carter was uh working for the british government as a diplomatic that's interesting to me that a lot of these uh, these famous explorers are also um, uh, political and uh, diplomatic people. Yep, spent time well, in the military. Well, it's interesting Yeah. Exactly, and it uh, gives me some hope <laughs> since I'm going to be uh, spending some time in the military as well. <laughs> 
go yeah. out. We'll, we'll, we'll make it someday. Right. <laughs> yep, hopefully. All right. So uh, by 1922, Lord Carnarvon became dissatisfied with the lack of results, and he actually informed Carter that he had one more season to make any significant find. So on November 4th, 1922, Carnarvon got his wish when their young water boy accidentally stumbled on a stone that turned out to be the top of a flight of steps cut into the bedrock. Carter had the steps partially dug out until the top of the doorway was found and stamped with indistinct cartouches. That's a great way to discover an ancient tomb, just stumbling upon an accident. Right, the water boy accidentally makes the greatest find in, uh, in all the world, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for him, it might as well have just been a, uh, just a rock on the ground. Yeah, an annoying rock he tripped over, and it's like, oh, now i got to go refill the water buckets. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid rock. But Carter, <laughs> Carter, he knew better. He knew that this was no ordinary rock. Yep, and uh, ultimately made the discovery of the lifetime because of his water boy, which is uh, which is pretty funny. That's 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 really funny to me. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like that's not the only time this has happened where something's found on accident, but then someone else comes in who actually knows what it is. Right, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that's happened many, many times throughout history. Like, they even found uh, some tombs and uh, the, the bones of, like, queens and stuff under parking lots because they accidentally built, like, parking lots and stuff over them. Right, right. And uh, on that same story, I think I know what you're talking about. What didn't they say that they they just had a hunch that it was there? They had no real concrete evidence? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, so that's interesting. Oh, yeah. And, uh... It shows you with the trained eye. Yeah, it's, that's the way you catch this stuff. Yeah. And a handful of luck. Oh, yeah. And uh, I do want to get into it. That uh, Carnivon, he wasn't even actually here when the, the when the water boy accidentally made this discovery. He was actually gone on a trip. And uh, he only returned on November 26, 1922, to finally return and see the discovery Carter had made when uh, they had made a tiny breach in the top left handle of the, the of the doorway. Uh, they ultimately ended up using a chisel, and uh, I actually read something that said this chisel was something that Carter had actually inherited when he was 17. And uh, it was like a, a something he got from his grandmother or something. I forget exactly what it was. And uh, he was able to use this to peer in by the light of a candle to see these thousands and thousands of gold and ebony treasures just lying there still in their place. And um, he didn't know it at the time, but uh, he said that, uh, or sorry, they didn't know if it was a tomb or merely an old cachet at the time, but saw a promising sealed doorway between two sentinel statues. Wow. So right there is like just the a, initial imagine, discovery point. Yeah, just imagine being the first person to lay, the first person since the Egyptians to lay eyes on a a tomb of thousands of gold uh gold statues and treasures yeah it's it's got to be so thrilling it's got to be such an amazing experience and uh that's why i that's why i love archaeology obviously it's not the the same today as it as it used to be but uh you know discoveries like this have been made throughout throughout our lifetime and uh before our slightly before our lifetime uh they're not just stuff that you can read in storybooks or fairy tales or uh, watch in the movies but stuff that has actually happened and this is one of those instances 
where uh, this gold and amity treasure was actually found with the discovery of King Tut. Yeah, it's possible. It's really possible. And uh, this is where we get into the quote, too, because uh, Carnivon asked Howard Carter, can you see anything? And uh, Carter replied with the famous words, yes, wonderful things. And so thus the quote, and uh, thus he discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, Carter's notes indicated that they later entered the burial chamber in November of 1922 before the official opening. And uh, actually realizing the size and scope of the task ahead, Carter thought out help from the Metropolitan Museum's excavation team, who readily agreed to loan a number of their staff. Oh, wow. So I mean, I'd be eager to lend a hand as well to be put on the on the newspapers of discovery of a lifetime. Oh yeah, I'm sure tons and tons of people are just jumping at the opportunity to find such an amazing discovery, or to excavate such an amazing discovery. Yeah, and uh, I found it interesting that uh, we talked about after we we went through some of his early life that uh, by that time uh, he. By 1905, when he resigned, he was uh, he kind of went solo, and uh, this is when he kind of realizes that he actually needs some people's help to, to finally finish this discovery. <laughs> That's funny, but yeah. Uh, what are the what are the logistics when discovering such a huge find? I know a lot of it goes to the museum, but uh, how much actually went to Howard Carter, or was it just the fame? Well, it's obviously different. Back, it was obviously different back then than it is now. I'm sure back then they probably got a little leeway and probably got quite a few more artifacts than you would today. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely changed and it's it's a lot more strict today than it used to be. So I'm sure he he got away with quite a few trinkets here and there. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely not the same though, and uh, it's pretty sad. Like I, even we were talking about Captain Dan, and I know this is off subject, but uh. But the interview with we did with Captain Dan, he has all those artifacts in the in the museum, and uh, uh, some of them he tried to, or some of them almost got stolen from him, from the from the government and other people who tried to pick from his tree. But uh, even during the 1980s, when he found those shipwrecks, we were still able to keep uh, keep most of the stuff that he found, and it's it's really not the same today, and it's uh, it's pretty sad. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but. It's, I'm sure it's still, you're still uh, fairly generous. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure Howard Carter probably had one of those early 1900s mansions with uh, tons of just Egyptian artifacts and stuff hanging on the wall. <laughs> yeah, he has his own museum, I bet. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he did. All right. So over the next several months, uh, they ultimately spent them cataloging under often stressful supervision from the Department of Antiquities. On February 16th, 1923, Carter got his first glimpse of the sarcophagus of King Tutankhamun. The tomb was considered the best preserved and most intact tomb ever found, and the discovery, sorry, the discovery was eagerly covered by world press. Their vivid descriptions cemented Carter's reputation with the British and world public. And uh, this is ultimately why his discovery has stood out among all the other discoveries people have made in Egypt or uh, not even just in Egypt, but the world alone is uh, because of how intact and how well preserved it was. Uh, if you look at King Tut's, uh, King Tut's sarcophagus compared to, uh, compared to some of the other mummies, it 
easily stands out and that's why it became such a famous discovery because it was in such good condition there were tombs where uh some of the people who actually worked to make the pharaoh's tomb actually would come back uh years later to steal those artifacts and uh ultimately a lot of those tombs were destroyed because of those reasons and uh, uh that combined with the uh, factors from the weather and the erosion and the animals and uh all that stuff combined, uh, a lot of these tombs were ultimately destroyed over the years, but King Tut's has proved to be one of the most well-preserved tombs, and that's really why it became such a famous discovery. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, um, his was uh, Carter's discovery was the most famous of, of about 60 other tombs, I believe, in the Valley of Kings. Right. So that's, was... like, that's a crazy discovery to find the most well-preserved and most famous tomb of all 60 tombs or or possibly more i'm not 100 sure don't quote me on this but that's crazy to me that he found like the uh arguably the most famous and intact tomb right exactly and uh, this like you said this is in the, the valley of the kings there's uh 60 plus tombs or at, at least 60 that have been uh documented and uh others probably to be made within the Valley of the Kings and uh, his ultimately ended up being the jackpot and then the, the best preserved. And uh, I think there's been some documentaries that have actually shown that there's other tombs that like extended off from King Tut's tombs. So it's, uh, I think that's an interesting thing as well that uh, he wasn't even the only mummy in his own tomb and that they found some evidence that there was actually a tunnel hidden behind King Tut's tomb that led to, uh, I think it was the tomb of his mother. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Sure. So uh, with all this publicity and this huge discovery, uh, towards the end of February 1923, it, uh, it kind of abruptly ended with a disagreement between Carter and Carnivon on how to manage the supervising Egyptian authorities. And so they actually ultimately ended up temporarily closing the excavation. But uh, work would recommence in early March after Carnarvon apologized to Carter. And uh, later that month, Carnarvon actually contracted blood poisoning while staying in Luxar near the tomb site and died on April 5th, 1923, very mysteriously. And uh, however, late Lady Carnarvon, his wife, would allow Carter to continue his work because uh, obviously they, they were the ones that were the funding the whole expedition. Wow, that's tragic. And also... Uh very mysterious almost sounds like a possible curse yep and uh we'll get into that later <laughs> but uh you would think that with all this publicity and this huge uh discovery that uh both sides would be uh would be pretty happy but because of this disagreement between carter and carnivon the, the excavations actually took a halt for for some time and uh, it, it didn't really continue until carnivon apologized so what if he didn't apologize would it have just ended there and then some of the discoveries that and some of the artifacts were that were in that tomb wouldn't have been found it's a it's an interesting question yeah i'm glad that it was able to continue the excavation to make uh to to save most of the artifacts and make these awesome discoveries but right would have been different otherwise yeah, I think it's just silly that ultimately all this work that they had put in ended abruptly just because of a disagreement they had. And so uh, it's a good thing that they were able to get over it. Yeah. 
So Carter would continue cataloging thousands of objects from the tomb until in 1932, most of them were moved to the Egyptian Museum. There were several breaks in the work, like uh, like the disagreement we talked about, and uh, another one, including one that lasted for nearly a year in 1924 to 1925, caused by a dispute yet again between uh, Carter and uh, what he saw as excessive control of the excavation by the Egyptian Antiquity Service. But uh, the Egyptian authorities eventually agreed that Carter should complete the tomb's clearance. So uh, again, all these different people are trying to pick from their tree and uh, the Egyptian Antiquity Service as well, which Carter, remember again in 1905, had already resigned from, but uh, they're, they're trying to get in on the loot and trying to pick from, uh, pick from under their discovery. And uh, ultimately, that's what happens when you make such a huge discovery like this. A lot of people try to take it away from you. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's funny that that's uh, the, the thing that he literally resigned from is trying to get back into there. So it's funny to me. Yeah. He ended up working for them, and uh, they, they ended up trying to steal from him. <laughs> Some interesting backstabbing yeah. there. Yeah, it came full circle. All right. And uh, despite being involved in the greatest archaeological find of its time, Carter received no honor from the British government. However, in 1926, Carter received the Order of the Nile, third class from King Fahd I of Egypt, and Carter had authored a number of books on Egyptology during his career. During those years, he had also been awarded an honorary degree of Doctor of Science by Yale University and an honorary membership in the Real Academia de la Historia of Madrid in Spain. Wow. I just think it's crazy that you can get honorary doctorates. Like, just, you make an amazing discovery, and then you you um, are just the next day you're a professor right exactly <laughs> you can get an honorary degree because of your because of your discovery and uh, i've seen uh some people around today that are still getting this and it's uh it's interesting just because of your prestige and the amazing discovery you made you can get an honorary degree yeah that's crazy to me i mean obviously it's deserved but i mean they they didn't have to do the full they didn't have to do the education system but I mean, they had their own. They had their own work, but I think it's just crazy. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, I also find it interesting that Carter received no honor from the British government. That like England totally just turned him off from this discovery, and uh, they didn't seem interested in it at all. And uh, I found that interesting as well. Yeah, uh, that's unfortunate. Honestly, the, the freaking country that you were born in doesn't care at all about this world-famous discovery that every other country in the world cares about. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a mighty shame. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Like, <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> yeah, you get tons of praise from all these other countries, but your own country gives you no, not even a single notice. <laughs> oh, you did what now? Oh, that's cool. All right, whatever. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's pretty cool that he authored a number of books on Egyptology as well. I've actually never found any books by Howard Carter, so now I gotta now I gotta go looking because uh, I'm sure those books are gotta be pretty interesting as well. Yeah. And then uh, at least uh, at least Egypt acknowledged him with uh, the Order of the Nile, which was a pretty prestigious award back for, back in that time 
So uh, at least Egypt did something for him. Not, not Britain, not his home country, but, you know, at least they got something. Yeah. <laughs> That's just got to just gotta be bad. Jeez. But let's get into these uh, these mysteries around surrounding the uh, the tomb. Oh yeah, the the supposed curse of King Tut's tomb, and then we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier with uh, with Lord Carnivon, who mysteriously died of this blood poisoning. But there were tons of other cases too, where people suppose where uh, people mysteriously died, and uh, nobody really knows why. So uh, I, I want to get into that because that's really an interesting part of it as well. Yeah, let's jump right into that. So alongside this great discovery uh, became a great uh, curse, uh, possibly many people disappearing uh, mysteriously or dying mysteriously while working the excavation of the tomb. Uh, and a lot of these are very coincidental and, and it leads to uh, the theory of whether there was a curse on this tomb or not. Right, a lot of them are very eerie circumstances that uh, nobody's really been able to explain until now, and we'll, uh, we'll get into the explanation later. But I do want to get into some of these mysterious cases and the supposed curse of King Tut. So since the discovery of King Tut's tomb, it has been speculated that there was a mysterious curse that was unleashed upon the team of Egyptologists once they opened the tomb, and that this resulted in the mysterious death of several members of the team. Uh, one of these in early 1923 was British archaeologist Howard Carter himself and his financial lord Carnivon, who ceremoniously opened the long obscured burial chamber of the boy pharaoh Tutankhamun in Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Yet two months later, Carnivon was dead, killed by a mysterious blood poisoning from an infected mosquito bite on his cheek. Newspapers speculated that he was a victim of the mummy's curse, or the so-called curse of the pharaohs, which supposedly promised death. To anyone who distributed or disturbed the rest of the kings and queens artifacts and the kings and queens burial site in the valley. Wow. So I bet Howard Carter was scared by this for sure. Oh yeah. I, I can imagine. And the the fact that Carnivon died too probably scared him a little bit as well, I'm sure. Yeah. This mysterious blood poisoning. Unless he had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. this mysterious yeah, blood poisoning that he just gets out of nowhere yeah I think that would be enough to deter me from uh, raid, from looting the tomb or excavating the tomb I should say you think so no probably not <laughs> but I'd definitely be scared about it <laughs> and definitely keep a watchful eye any mummies yeah, come I after you. yeah i'd probably be i'd probably become paranoid if, if my own boss died right and you, the yeah. financer of the whole thing dies and uh and as you can imagine only such rumors only increased after their sudden death of several others connected to the exact same curse uh during the excavation of king tuankamun's tomb another one of these people was sir bruce ingham which was another such victim of the mummy's curse, when Howard Carter gave him a paperweight as a gift, which ironically consisted of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that was supposedly inscribed with the phrase, Cursed be he who moves my body. 
Ingham's house was mysteriously burned to the ground not long after receiving the gift, and when he tried to rebuild it, it was hit with a flood. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. I would be terrified if I was given <laughs> if I was given a paperweight of a mummy's hand that said "Cursed be he who moves my body," and then my house got burned down. That's absolutely terrifying. The, the gift alone, but then the fact that like only within a few weeks or months, they, your house just mysteriously burns to ground <laughs> and then flooded. I mean, I might believe the curse will exist after that. I mean, yeah, after the first time, I'd probably be like, oh, it's just a coincidence. But the second time with the flood, I'd be like, what's happening here? Yeah. Jeez. That's crazy. Can you imagine getting a paperweight of a mummified hand? (laughs) Howard Carter was an interesting fellow. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. It's like, oh, you want a gift? Uh, Here you go. Here's a mummified hand. No, what was happening is, is is this guy's birthday, and he didn't have a gift for him, but he had this modified hand on him, so he gave it to him. <laughs> happy, happy birthday. Oh, yeah, and you can fact check us. No joke. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> this is 100% true. Oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and this is how we get kicked off anchor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyways, uh, yeah, that is such a creepy gift. And jeez, uh, I can't even imagine the the fact that your house burns down and uh, it, it gets hit again by a flood only uh, shortly after that. That's got to be a little eerie to say the least, if not uh, makes you think more about that so-called mummy's curse. Yeah. So another person was uh, George J. Gold, who was a wealthy American financer and a railroad executive who visited the tomb of Tuankamun in 1923 and fell sick almost immediately afterwards. He never really recovered and died of pneumonia only a few months later. That's tragic. So he only visited the tomb and then he dies a few months later, mysteriously. Yeah. So So just like. He must have caught something there. Yeah, just like seeing the tomb and visiting the tomb, he, he dies mysteriously. I'm sure people were, were were freaking out about this curse, having, considering so many people were being victimized and dying from just visiting the tomb. Oh, yeah. There's tons of just mysterious mysterious deaths that are surrounded by this whole story. And it's uh, it's got to be something that definitely spooked them at the time. And I really made them think that, uh, wow, is this mummy's curse real? Because uh, you got you got to imagine... Just watching these people mysteriously die in front of your own eyes. That's it's crazy. Yeah. What was he doing there? Why was he was he just visiting just a visit? Well, yeah, it was a world discovery. And so I'm sure it definitely caught his interest in uh, being uh, probably pretty rich as a wealthy American financer and railroad executive. He probably had the money to go out there and actually see it for himself. Wow, that's unfortunate to just be visiting something and then that's the last visit you'll ever get. Oh, yeah, and then there goes all your money. <laughs> there goes all your life's work. Unfortunate. Oh, yeah. 
It's even said that Lord Carnivon's half-brother, Aubrey Herbert, suffered from King Tut's curse merely by being related to him. Aubrey Herbert was born with a generative eye condition and became totally blind later in life. A doctor suggested that his rotten, infected teeth were somehow interfering with his vision, and Herbert had every single tooth pulled from his head in an effort to regain his sight. It didn't work. He did, however, die of sepsis as a result of the surgery just five months after the death of his supposedly cursed brother. That sounds like a horrible way to go. Absolutely oh spooky. Oh my gosh. That's vivid. That is That's like gross. such a painful death too. Oh my gosh. Every single tooth being pulled from your head. Wait, what? where are they even getting this idea? How do the teeth impact your intact your eye disease and your eye condition yeah this this just proves how bad the medical industry uh the medical uh what the medical what is it industry i feel like the medical industry the metal medical uh practices yeah how bad the medical field was back then yeah honestly yeah, it makes you practice right it makes you almost wonder if they're like pulling these teeth just because they're being they're being possessed by the curse. <laughs> it's the mummy speaking through him. Oh, we have to pull all your teeth out now. <laughs> That's creepy. That's creepy. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, that's that's terrible. And uh, this guy Aubrey Herbert, he didn't have any relation at all to uh to the discovery. Really, he was only related to it because he was the half brother of Lord Carnarvon. He didn't even visit the site. Yeah, he, uh, he he never saw any of the, the artifacts or anything. But just because he was the half brother of Lord Carnarvon, he ends up mysteriously dying, maybe from the mummy's curse. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's pretty spooky. So another one was one Evelyn White, who was a British archaeologist who visited King Tut's tomb and may have helped excavate the site. After seeing death sweep over about two dozen of his fellow excavators by 1924, Evelyn White hung himself, but not before writing allegedly in his own blood that I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. What? That is creepy. Wait, he, yeah. Are you sure this curse isn't real? <laughs> <laughs> it makes you think. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand how they're going to explain that. Right. I probably had some mental disorder or something that uh that messed with his head. That's crazy. And with all these deaths, too, that were surrounding him, he probably saw it as inevitable that uh, he was going to die as well. Inevitable, yeah. He probably became paranoid. That's why he did it. Yeah, I think he was paranoid. Jeez. These are all, like, very gruesome ways to go out, too. It's not like, oh, they died in their sleep or anything. No, it's like they hung themselves or uh, they got all their teeth ripped out or something very gruesome. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that it would have been like a, a disease that the Egyptians uh, had, but or that developed from all the corpses in the tomb. Right, but there's tons of different ways that they die, and they're all like very gruesome deaths as well. That's crazy. So another one of these mysterious deaths was 
with uh, American Egyptologist Aaron Ember, who was friends with many of the people who were present when the tomb was opened, including Lord Carnarvon. Ember died in 1926 when his house in Baltimore was burned down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He could have exited safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he had been working on while she fetched their son. Sadly, they and their family's maid died in the catastrophe, and the name of the Ember's manuscript, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. What? He could have, he could have lived, but his wife encouraged him to save the manuscript? Jeez. Oh my, I bet you felt terrible after that. Right, your your life's not worth this this piece of paper. Jeez. Oh wow. And he catches that too, that the that manuscript that he went back in to fetch was titled The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Yeah, that's that's creepy. That's a good mm. question. <laughs> and that's the second house burning down too. That's the second house that's burned down. These, so the uh, house is burning down. These mummies don't like the houses, do they? I mean, I, I'd imagine I'd imagine what it's like to be a journalist at this time. It'd be easy headlines every single day. Oh yeah, and it's like there's no natural explanation. Like some of these, there there definitely is a, a disease or something that somebody could have contracted. But the fact that their houses are burning down and stuff, and it, it's not just the one guy, but it's like two guys too. I yeah, I mean, I, it's it seems like very hard to explain. It's it's definitely very hard to explain. There, there's no disease or something that would cause a house to burn down like that. It's it's and and the fact that it was two, because if it was one, it, oh, it could have been a coincidence. But there, there's two people, and both of their houses got burned down. That's a that's a, that's a little hard to explain. Yeah, it's a little. I think little it's crazy well. that the the manuscript was the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Right. They just slid in the Egyptian book of the dead. <laughs> Another connection to uh, ancient Egypt and the mummies and stuff. Oh. Well, if you don't know, the, the Egyptian book of the dead was an actual, I think I think it was an actual book based on uh, the afterlife in Egypt and uh, how uh, their belief system, or what their belief system centered around and what they thought happened after death. And uh, maybe... Uh, Aaron ended up finding out. Yeah, doesn't the... I feel like I actually remember hearing about this. So doesn't it explain, like, their uh, ritual before afterlife, what they do with the organs and what they do with the body to preserve it? Oh, yeah. And that's uh, it's bloody practices, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. I think you guys should check it out if you have the time. Yeah, you, you can find it on the web, pretty much. Yeah. It's a it's Don't they a like, uh, hollow you out. Don't they like hollow out your body? Um I know they pull your brain out through your nose. Wow. Yeah, and they like take I feel like they take your heart as well and some of your organs. Yeah, and uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is uh, among a lot of other esoteric books too. So uh, like uh esotericism and the occult and stuff they they they've thrown that in there with the occult stuff as well. Yeah, so pretty much the Book of the Dead was an ancient Egyptian funerary text generally written on papyrus and used from the beginning of the New Kingdom to around 50 BC. And uh, the name was translated as a uh, Book of Coming Forth by uh, by Day or Book of Emerging Forth into the Light. Or pretty much like coming into the light of heaven or the afterlife or whatever. 
So based on their beliefs in the afterlife. It was also a bunch of uh, mortuary texts, spells, and magical formulas and stuff. So uh, it's pretty creepy. That's for sure. Yeah. So anyways, uh, getting back into some of these people who died. Bethel, who was uh, one of Lord Carnivon's secretaries, and the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb, died mysteriously in 1929 under suspicious circumstances. He was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club soon after the Nottingham Post mused. The suggestion that the Han, or uh, sorry, that's probably the honorary Richard Bethel, had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home where some of the priceless finds from two Ankamun's tomb were stored. No evidence of a connection between artifacts and Bethel's death was established, though. And that's from the newspaper at the time, actually. For more fires. Wow. Yeah, more fires. He got smothered to death, too. So that means, like, our beam or something fell down on him and he couldn't get out. Uh, that is unlucky to say the least jeez that is a that's a brutal death as well and there's no again there's no easy way to explain this because you could explain away a parasite or a disease or something that somebody could get from entering the tomb but you can't explain away a house fire or at least it's going to be very hard to explain that away yeah i mean yeah because these are not these are not common ways to go like Especially now. I mean, um, it might have been different back then. I don't know how, how common it was for a house to fall on you, but that's crazy. Yeah, and here we've, like, we've seen three people alone whose houses have burned down, supposedly because of this mummy's curse. Wow. It makes yeah, you there's think. There's definitely, definitely a connection there. Oh, yeah. So another one was uh, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed proving that you didn't have to be one of the excavators or one of the expedition backers to fall victim to the curse. And that's ultimately what he proved because Reed, who was a radiologist, merely x-rayed King Cut before the mummy was given to the museum authorities. And he mysteriously got sick the next day and was dead three days later. So he wasn't even there when they opened the tomb, but just because he was analyzing the body of King Cut, he mysteriously dies three days later. But I think uh, this one actually is a little bit more explainable because I feel like there could have been something maybe on maybe on the mummy that he contracted that uh, that ultimately results in his death because I think that would be a be more be- believable than something yeah. like a house fire. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, that sounds like something that would happen. I mean, if you're a rotting corpse, you're probably likely to hold some disease. Well, exactly, and a, a thousand-year-old corpse at that, thousands and thousands of years old corpse. <laughs> you got to imagine what yeah. kind of ancient parasites and stuff had been festering and living on that mummy thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So I think that one's a little bit more explainable. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll talk about one more, and this one was James Henry Breasted who was another famous Egyptologist of the day who was working with Carter when the tomb was opened. Shortly thereafter, he allegedly returned home to find that his pet canary had been eaten by a cobra and the cobra was still occupying the cage. 
since the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy and a motive that kings wore on their headdresses to represent protection, this was a rather ominous sign. Preston himself didn't die until 1935, although his death did occur immediately after a trip back to Egypt. Oh, wow. I mean, what, why was there a cobra in his, in his home? Was he... Right? Why, did he own a cobra? No. <laughs> What? That's crazy then. What? I would be terrified after that. I'd, I'd be like, how the heck did this cobra get in here? Oh, yeah. And I'd be fair, freaking terrified of the cobra itself, too. <laughs> well, no, the cobra would be like a, a new pet. I just, I just replaced <laughs> the bird with the cobra. A new pet. The new pet that kills your <laughs> old pet. <laughs> So first, Those are all... first his his canary dies, which is a bird, and then uh, he comes back to Egypt, and then he dies. So the symbology there with the cobra and the fact that he died returning back to Egypt and not any other country is uh is pretty interesting. This one I think you could probably find a way to explain though too. There's there probably could have been some way that the the cobra got in the house or something, but still it it, it is pretty keep creepy the fact that this the cobra was also the symbol of the egyptian monarchy wow also a symbol of protection so uh maybe it was trying to protect the the curse of the mummy or protect the mummy or something that is definitely definitely terrifying so that is pretty much the extent of all of these mysterious deaths that happen surrounding this curse in the mummy. And uh, a lot of these stuff is, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot of it. I should say some of it can be easily explained, but a lot of it is pretty mysterious. And uh, I don't know if it might ever be solved. So uh, it, it's definitely pretty interesting. But some of them definitely can be solved. And uh, the fact that the curse is real has been uh, pretty much disproven by now. And uh, scientists are finding ways to explain how these mysterious deaths have happened. So, uh, Ian, you want to start sharing that? Sure. So, obviously, a lot of this is very mysterious circumstances. And a lot of it, again, is, uh, is pretty hard to explain. So, it really beckons the question, is this curse real? Is this curse of the mummy that uh, resulted maybe in these mysterious deaths of these people who had maybe little relation or a total relation. It, it didn't matter that all these people mysteriously died. So uh, it really does back in the question, is the mummy's curse actually real? Yes, that is the question and whether the curse is real or not. Well, it depends on who you're asking, but according to the British medical journal uh, that did a study in 2002 on the survival rates of 44 Westerners, whom Carter had identified as being in Egypt when the tomb was examined, and the curse was said not to affect native Egyptians. So the study compared the mean age of death for the 25 of those people who were present at the opening, opening or examination of the tomb with the others who weren't. So if you were, ever, if you were planning on visiting Egypt, uh, you're in luck because uh, according to the study, uh, these deaths were just very unfortunate coincidences. Yep, and it's not discriminatory either. It can easily kill native Egyptians just as easily as it could kill Westerners. And uh, I think right. that was the superstition definitely at that time as well that, oh, oh no, only these people who uh, came from uh, from Britain or whatever to excavate these tombs were the ones that were going to die. But 
but uh, that's def- that, that's not true because uh, it has an equal chance of killing native Egyptians or uh, British citizens or people from the expedition. And uh, being so, it's uh, it's most likely a disease or something then, because if it's not discriminatory, then it's got to be something that kills equally, such as a disease. I mean, yeah, there's that, but there's also... I don't know how you can explain a disease burning someone's three people's houses down. Right. Well, those are the mysterious circumstances that really, that really beckon the question. Right. But other than that. But uh, moving on. Yeah. Uh, it found no significant association between potential exposure to the mummy's curse and survival, as well as no sign at all that those who were exposed were more likely to die within 10 years. So. There's no direct correlation between time, uh, a timely death and your exposure to the mummies, too. Right, exactly. And the, the exposure doesn't really has no significant association. Uh, obviously, you could uh, you could die whenever and you could die right after uh, right after leaving the tomb or uh, within 10 years. It, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, either way, it, it's, it sounds to me very much like a disease because uh, people's immune systems depend it, that people's immune systems can be stronger in other people than they are in some other people. If, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Some people have a better immune system than others. And so they, they could have lasted longer with uh, whatever disease or bacteria or whatever you want to call it. Maybe they contracted from this tomb. And I, I really think it's something along those lines. Yeah. I would, I wouldn't uh, put it against you because uh, at this time, the, like we were saying, the medical field is very underdeveloped and, being able to identify a disease like that would be very difficult for them to do. And that's why they've actually developed practices. So when they do excavate tombs now, they actually wait a few days or maybe a week before they actually enter the tomb. So that way, anything that might be in there has time to interact with the modern air and uh, ultimately, hopefully, it gets destroyed because of it. Right. And uh, some theorists seeking a scientific explanation say that Carnivon's death may have been linked to toxins within Tut's tomb, like we are saying, like toxins or a possible disease. While some ancient mummies have been shown to carry potentially dangerous species of mold and the tomb walls could have been covered in bacteria known to attack the respiratory system, experts dismiss this hypothesis. Right, and uh, going back a little bit, you remember Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, the guy who was working on the mummy, uh, he mysteriously died three days later. I think an explanation like that, where there's a bacteria or something on the mummy, I think that's how it explains away the curse. Right. Because uh, he was interacting with the mummy, he easily could have picked something up off of this thousand-year-old corpse that uh, didn't act well with his body and ultimately resulted in his death. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it was some uh, mold or something or something living that it's harmful to breathe. Because there's house molds that are also harmful to breathe and they just fester in places that are untouched. Right. And uh, I find it interesting that Carnivon's death may have even been linked to the toxins. Because if you go back and remember that he had an open wound from that mosquito bite. So something easily could have gotten in there, a, to- a toxin or something easily could have gotten into his bloodstream and uh, destroyed his body. Right. Uh, they argue that Carnivon was chronically ill before he ever set foot near Tut's tomb. 
Besides, he didn't die until months after his first exposure, and the toxins would have done him in much earlier. So they're saying that the toxins uh, were, uh, it's unlikely that the toxins were any cause to his death, considering he was already chronically ill. So Exactly, and he was already dying. That's, I guess that was another thing I forgot to mention. Is he was already dying. He had the open wound, something he could have easily gotten in his wound. Combine that with uh, the fact that he was already chronically ill, it, uh, it makes sense why he ended up dying. Right. So uh, a lot of these deaths can be explained away. But again, some of them can't. So it really does back in the question. Does King Tut's tomb have a curse on it? When Howard Carter found it back in the 1930s, did he unleash a curse that maybe is still around today? And uh, that's the real question. And that's our question on this episode of History's Mysteries. And, and how long does the chain of influence go? You know, his exactly. brother did never even set foot in the tomb, but we're talking about it and you're listening to us. So maybe you have been cursed now. Right. So you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> have a, have a, have a, have a good night. Uh, leave us, leave, uh, let us know, uh, comment on our Facebook page, whether you believe in the curse or not. Yep, exactly. Uh, comment your comment your thoughts or your questions or whatever you think about this, about this, this. supposed <laughs> curse of King Tut. All right. And uh, Ian, if you don't have anything to say, we'll get right into the conclusion. Yeah, let's hop right into that conclusion. All right. All right. We'll wrap this up. And then next week, we'll have another video, another episode on a historical subject. And uh, I'm not too sure what we're actually going to be talking about because we're going to try and uh, change things up a little bit. And uh, we're trying to plan a behind-the-scenes episode after this one, which will uh, explain some of the stuff that we're trying to change around for uh, for upcoming episodes. So uh, make sure you guys stay tuned for that. But uh, as usual, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our podcasting service that's been a miracle in making these episodes. And uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. And if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, this is a great service to do that, and I highly recommend it. But more importantly, I'd like to give a shout out to those of you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page, the community page, and our Twitter as we continue to grow. Some new people who have liked the community page, uh, there's four, there's actually 15 people who have uh, liked the community page. And I give a shout out to all 15 of those people who are now on our community page. And I hope you're enjoying it. I just put some articles up there about some of the recent discoveries that have been being made and uh, just some questions about the episodes and uh, really what you guys think about the podcast. And uh, that's really a place for you guys to grow as a community surrounded by the podcast and uh, really create a group of uh, loyal followers who are interacting with us and uh, continue to uh, share their opinions for future episodes. So we continue to learn and uh, grow as a podcast. So we really appreciate those 15 people who have liked and been following on the community page. It's a, it's a great thing to see and it's uh it's bringing the growth. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for all your support guys. All right. And uh, Ian, if you don't have anything else to say, uh, well, we'll end it. All right, you guys. Thanks for listening all the way to the end and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Yep. All right. All that being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. All right. Carpe diem. Carpe diem.